You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and joining me in the cave tonight are Stuart Richards. Hi. Hi, and Sally Christie. Hello. Hi, and special guest, Cerise Howard. You may have heard of her. Hi, Cerise. Hi, who are you people? <laughs> who are you? Where I, have you been? I, nowhere. I've just been about. About? Well, you're back. Welcome you, back. Thank you. You've been several places. Yes. <laughs> so confused. Yeah. Like we just, like, <laughs> I just don't know that that's on topic or of interest to anybody. <laughs> Moving on then. Um, on tonight's show, uh, we discuss a couple of biopics. Um, one is quite uplifting. One is quite tragic. And we end on a on a upper note with the breaker upperers. Um, but first, RBG is the film we'll be discussing uh, first off. Uh, at the age of eighty five, U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has built an impressive legacy as a pioneer in gender equality. RBG explores the inspiring and unique personal journey of this diminutive, quiet warrior's rise to the USA's highest court and her impact along the way, changing the rules, shaping the laws and becoming an unexpected pop culture icon. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the second woman appointed to the United States Supreme Court, but she's probably the first justice to become a fully fledged pop cultural phenomenon this soft-spoken fragile looking 84 year old seems an unlikely earner of the uh, monica notorious rbg nickname um but she's developed this cult following among millennials for her long-standing commitment to the fight for women's equality directed by journalists and filmmakers betsy west and julie cohen rgb premiered at sundance in january and is currently on limited release here in australia the film is a jaunty assemblage of interviews public appearances and archive material illuminating Ginsburg's temperament and her accomplishments from the early years when she pushed past entrenched sexism to become the top lawyer fighting for women's rights to the present where she does daily push-ups as easily as drafting blistering dissents. Sally, what did you make of this portrait of a pint-sized heavyweight? I liked watching her do her push-ups. Yeah, it was a good way to start the film, wasn't it? Wasn't it? I went into this and I felt quite ignorant because I had never even heard of her before. (gasps) I know. (laughs) Shame. Shame, <laughs> but it was um, it was it was good for me in that way because it was super interesting. Everything was brand new for me, and she is incredible. She's done all this amazing stuff. Obviously, I'd seen the trailers before. I had seen the film, and I did expect her to be kind of like. I don't know, almost a Judge Judy kind of character, but she's so sweet and she is so soft spoken. And um, the archival footage in it was probably my favourite bit with seeing, you know, all the things that she helped sort of push forward in the States and how she really has changed the way that the country does work to an extent. What do you think, Stu? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I really enjoyed mm. it. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. It's a really slick documentary. And, I mean, I, I had heard of her, but mainly through sort of the memes that get generated around her Um but I think sort of this documentary that what does really well is that it demonstrates, I guess, the sheer impact that she had on the cultural landscape of the US uh, back from sort of particularly sort of in the 70s mm. and a lot of the court cases she fought. Mm. Uh, and so I, th- I think it, um, in in that regards, I think it does a really good job in terms of, yes, she's a meme today. And I like that they did engage in you know, the meme culture. Land. I haven't seen any culture. memes with her in it. Oh, really? I thought I was all over it, all over memes. Get on Twitter. Not. 
Yeah, every time she sort of makes a statement, a t-shirt, a new t-shirt comes out yeah. or a mug with a with an RGB statement across it. And, mm. um, I thought I was hip, but I'm not. <laughs> there was one moment that I got quite emotional in. That was it was the, her first case that she was arguing at the Supreme Court, and it was over the equal pay. And that was when she first started fighting for um, against gender discrimination. And there was, and I think the way. The, the documentary handles that of uh, those voice recordings. I think it does really well because I believe they had the voice recordings, but they didn't have any footage of the actual um, the the court case. Mm. Uh, so what they did is they just had the dialogue sort of printed on the screen as it um, sort of just showed a courtroom. Mm. Uh, but then there was her line where she said that women are branded inferior. I believe that was the the quote. And they had that on the screen and then it kind of continued with her speech and it just showed sort of a sequence of all of these photographs of sort of women throughout the ages in kind of menial labour jobs. Mm. Uh, And I thought that was a really powerful moment and that was, for me, the moment I was like, all right, this is more than just her as a figure, this is more than just sort of her being a meme like this is sort of sort of the impact that she's made yeah, yeah. sort of sort of the journey of um sort of feminism in the US yeah i agree there was i mean the interest the information was all very interesting and you know the start of her career it's just quite remarkable what she achieved and it wasn't that long ago which is the most shocking mm. thing about it but you know she made the harvard law review um where 25 people were selected out of 530. She was the only woman, obviously. There were so mm. few women to be selected from from that starting place. Yeah, it was too. seven out of hundreds. Yeah, fi- yeah 530 yeah. is what they chose them for. It was remarkable that, that mm. she did that. Um, and the things that have changed since... I mean, when she got into the law, mar- marital rape wasn't prosecuted. Women could be, could be fired for being pregnant. Um, I found all that stuff really fascinating um, and enriching, you know, to remind yourself of, of how far we've come in such a short period of time. What was what I found interesting, though, was people like Gloria Steinem in the documentary who were very active on the women's rights movements and marching, demonstrating, and, and they're all voices with, within this documentary. Um, but she wasn't one of those people. So Ruth didn't march. She wasn't mm. an activist in that way. She had this very conservative stra- strategy, which was sort of one step at a time, and the goal was always human rights. So she sort of did it through this very male-dominated world um, in a very masculine way. She played their game and she did interesting things there there was one case um where it was about uh, equal uh, pay, it was about pay for um, stay-at-home parents or single mm. parents or something. I can't remember what the, the case. Oh, was, oh, that's right. It was a widower. Yeah. Um, who he was left to raise his child, um, but he wasn't entitled to government benefits because he was a man. So Ruth wanted the she, he, she wanted that specific case because she could put a man up in front of the su- Supreme Court members and they could see themselves reflected in him. And that's how she made change. She made these very strategic choices on the cases that she chose. Um, that she could get past this sort of male authority, and I mm. thought that was that was just fascinating. And yeah, I thought that the, the, like I said, the information was all really interesting. But I just found that the film itself was a little bit repetitive and un- unimaginative, unimaginative in its approach. And yeah. it sort of it sort of really kicked off when they reached the sort of the memes and the fun stuff that they could glean from the internet. And mm. I felt like the filmmakers were really comfortable in that space. Um, that sort of quick cut, cutting you know montages of memes and um, um, merchandise and stuff, but the film to me on a whole felt a little bit fangirl mm. from the from the filmmakers and, and not so invest, investigative. I can never say that word. How do you say it? Investigative. Thank you. Yep. Um, 
Because <laughs> it's sort of, it's great in the way, like it opens up with this sort of chorus of right-wing vox pops sort of banding these overheated terms describing Ginsburg like a zombie and a witch, witch and she's yeah. so wicked. Mm. Um, but the film sort of takes the high road and um, and sort of just becomes this celebration of her. Um, but they never interview anyone who has any sort of val- valid opposing opinions about what she's... There's um, Oren Hatch, I believe yeah. his name is. So the, And there are... Is that the friend of hers? That yeah, the conservative that? friend. And mm. then there's also uh, the um, a lot of archival footage of Scalia being interviewed yep. sort of before he died, died who yeah. was another major conservative figure. So they do... Um, kind of, but it's, it's in a way. It's also they use that as another way to, um, to to talk about how great she is because she's able to communicate and engage with these conservative voices, yes. um, even though they're horrible. And they and they have a lot of respect for her too. Those two people yeah. that, you, that you mentioned. But there was things like there was that controversy. Um, a few years ago when she didn't retire under under Obama. Mm. And that wasn't touched on at all because that is quite a big issue now yeah. with Trump. It and does gloss over some criticisms yeah, in just, her career. I mean, there are, there are very few criticisms in her career, yeah. should stress that, but it does kind of gloss over them, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, the closest you sort of get is that brief sequence dealing with um, that controversy in 2016 around Trump. Yeah, that was, that was glossed over really quickly. I mean, because obviously she can't, because of her position on the Supreme Court, she can't really talk about her true feelings of Trump. She can't have an opinion. She yeah. can't have an opinion. Yeah. Um, which I think is sort of an, an unavoidable hurdle of this documentary because I really want to know what she thinks of this current era's mm. sort of swing to the right. Mm. But obviously you can't go there in this documentary. No, and I think that's why she stayed under mm. Obama because of this sort of fear to hold that position. But mm. the, the risk is if she can no longer do it, mm. she'll be replaced by somebody much more conservative yeah. and it's a big yeah. risk to the, to the, to the system. Did you have anything else to add, Sally, or should I? Um, no, I haven't. I don't have a lot to add. On this. <laughs> I only got to see the first hour of it, unfortunately. So I miss all the great stuff with Trump and the meme culture oh, and everything that you're talking about. It's all about. right. Um, I, I haven't seen it at all. Just no, to, no, just to no, chime no, in yeah, at this yeah, juncture. <laughs> And welcome back, Sarita. Thank you. But I, I am interested in this whole meme business. Yeah, I understand I a lot of it is punning on Ruth, uh, the truth. There's a lot of putting the root. Uh, you putting can't the have truth. In yeah. truth. Yeah. yeah. Is this the calibre of the gags generally on these memes? Is it, is <laughs> it that sophisticated? Well, is I mean, it, there, there's a lot of notorious B.I.G. Yes. being played yes. in the RGB, B.I.G. So there's a lot of, like, gangster rap and stuff that sits alongside it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Kate uh, McKinnon. McKinnon. Oh, yeah, um, Saturday Night on Live. S- on SNL, and so, which is a really genuinely great moment. They play uh, scenes from SNL with Kate McKinnon. McKinnon? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I always confuse her with Kate McLennan, um, mm. of sort of her being um, sort of RBG and... Ruth kind of like laughing, going, yes, that's nothing like me, but it's genuinely hilarious. Yes, it is genuinely hilarious. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
And from one biopic about a leading lady to another, filmmaking, filmmaker sorry, Kevin McLeod examines the life and career of singer Whitney Houston in the documentary Whitney. The film features some never-before-seen archival footage, exclusive recordings, rare performances and interviews with family, friends and colleagues. Singer and actor Whitney Houston, who died in 2012 at the age of 46, is cited as the most awarded female act of all time, selling over 200 million records worldwide. All seven of her studio albums and her two soundtrack albums have been certified diamond, multi-platinum, platinum, gold by the Recording Industry Association of America. And Houston is the only artist to have seven consecutive number one Billboard Hot 100 songs. In 85, her self-titled debut album became the best-selling debut album by a woman in history. Her second studio album, Whitney, in 87, became the first album by a woman to debut at number one on the Billboard 200 albums chart. In 92, Houston made her screen acting debut as Rachel Marin in the romantic um, thriller film The Bodyguard alongside Kevin Costner. The lead single from the film's original soundtrack, which everybody knows, I Will Always Love You, became the best-selling single by a woman in music history. The soundtrack received the Grammy Award for Album of the Year, and this album also made her the top female act in the top 10 list of the best-selling albums of all time at number four. I could carry on and on uh, with the accolades, but we don't have all night. Um, You get the idea. She was a highly lauded phenomenon. Um, On February 11 in 2012, Houston was found dead in her hotel room, and the coroner report showed that she had accidentally drowned in the bathtub with heart disease and cocaine use as contributing factors. Um, When a significant artist with so much appeal dies, battles over legacy are fraught and Whitney Houston's death posed a doubly unique challenge. The second half of her career, which was marred with public battles of drug addiction and mental health issues, which contributed to diminished recordings and performance output, tarnished Houston's reputation and undermined the achievements made at the beginning of her career. Filmmaker Kevin MacDonald's film Whitney addresses this challenge by largely ignoring her meteoric rise. Instead, it attempts to unpack what caused her start of so dramatically. It sits in contrast to another recent documentary on Houston's life from British filmmaker Nick Broomfield called Whitney Can I Be Me uh, that was released last year and attempted to answer similar questions but without the family's approval. McDonald's film is sanctioned by her family and her estate. I'll let you kick this one off, Stu, because you've seen both films, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, So I was at Frameline last year in San Francisco and uh, Broomfield was there with Whitney Can I Be Me. and that was a really interesting screening because sort of the the Castro Theatre was full of predominantly sort of queer women of colour and they were there to cheer on Whitney, but they were also there to cheer on Robin, um, who I think... And that's sort of in thinking about how these two films are different, I think that is sort of the starkest sort of difference in terms of how... Whitney's kind of queerness is is treated. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you explain to listeners who Robin is? Because I yeah. didn't, I actually didn't know going into yeah, this. Yeah, so, um, I mean, both films do touch on a lot of the speculation around Whitney's sexuality. And um, in 2016, Bobby Brown, in his biography, does sort of um, out Whitney and does sort of confirm that Robin and Whitney were in a relationship. Um, in this film, it's really just speculated, Mm. Uh, but in the other documentary, a big part of the entire film is this love triangle between the three of them and how Bobby Brown and Robin hated each other and um, how Robin was sort of outed, sort of, um, sort of treated really poorly by the family um, and, the, and sort of the, the documentary Whitney Can I Be Me 
really sort of in answering sort of why did Whitney go off the rails, what was the cause of her demise, that film says sort of quite sort of um, pointedly the reason why Whitney kind of went off the rails was because Robin left and Robin was no longer sort of a strong influence in Whitney's life. Mm. Um, and in that screening in the Castro at the very end when all of the credits are rolling and it kind of explains where everyone is, sort of there was sort of a, a sort of a, um, a, a, a screen, a shot sort of dedicated to Robin and it says she's now married and sort of has sort of X amount of kids and the entire audience cheered because for the for that documentary it's just as much about Robin. Uh, with yep. this one, um, I think sort of she's definitely there, but sort of her influence sort of isn't as emphasised. I mm. think I was I went into this documentary because I have seen the Nick Broomfield one as well. Mm. I found them very similar, um, oh. very very similar. I thought. I, I assumed that in this one, the one screening now that's just called Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing. So confusing. Um, I didn't think that even mentioned Robin at all. Mm. So even having her um, in there was surprising to me. And the way that she was introduced was quite awful, I felt, in this. Yeah, Horrible. really awful. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, it was by the family yeah. who obviously didn't approve of, of mm. the relationship, which is possibly why she's not as featured because they yeah. have approved this film. Mm-hmm. Possibly, I don't know. Yeah, but the, yeah, the way they introduced her was quite awful and I thought that they were going to keep taking that sort of line with it, but they did change it. Mm. Um, I, I did enjoy both, but I kind of found that they both did have the same info. This one that's screening now, Whitney did have kind of one bombshell that I hadn't heard before, which was new. Um, Mm. And I was really excited that Bobby Brown was going to be in this and he was a total dud in it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, he was, yeah. Had nothing to contribute. And he shied away from... Yeah, like nothing, Mm. you know, talking about the drug use. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that sort of this film is sort of um, approved by the family, but in comparing the two... This film with Whitney, the more recent one, treats the family, sort of presents them to be horrible, horrible influences on their life, where the first one, I think, is actually a lot more kinder to the family. Um, That other one, I don't think, mentions Bobby Brown's arrest, I'm pretty sure, where this one does. Mm. Um, And when Robin's um, introduced, the brother is like, she's the devil, she's a horrible influence, she needs to get away from, uh, from Whitney. But then... It's like, dude, you're the one that was feeding her drugs. Like, you're the one mm. that got her addicted. Mm. Yeah, they also, there was lots of parallels with this and um, the recent Amy Winehouse documentary I as well. I thought so Amy, too, yeah. Which, it's just, God, we just treat drug addicts in such a shitty way. Mm. It's horrible, just mm. the way that we crucify them, which happened with both Amy Winehouse and Whitney Houston before they died. And seeing that you know, spat, uh, spat back at you on a screen is heartbreaking. Like mm. uh, seeing those Saturday Night Live skits and the American Dad stuff and the same thing happened in the Amy Winehouse doco. Just the... They how, become a joke, a household joke. They're publicly shamed, yeah. like yeah. consistently uh, until they're dead. Um, it's horrible. But, yeah, that kind of thing here where we're seeing the family you know, keeping her habit alive because they're making an income off her. Well, that's Same yeah. thing with um, Amy Winehouse and her father. Yeah, it was that, that I found really shocking too, the way that the whole family are getting a meal ticket from Whitney. So they were really invested in the, her continuing to perform even when she couldn't mm. because they'd all sort of given themselves jobs around her and the worst yeah. being her father, you know, who, who sacked her, <laughs> Clive, oh. her manager, yeah. and thought, well, I want a bit of the action. Yeah. So he put himself in that position and then, you know, he was sort of a wannabe agent 
agent his whole life and could never sign anyone but had this sort of the fortunate luck of having a daughter who was this incredible talent then he sort of wanted to elevate himself and her life seemed to be marred by people that wanted to lift themselves up but none of them could get higher than her um, which was the biggest problem with Bobby Brown because he wanted that success that she had. And I thought actually it's kind of, there was an interesting parallel to the RGB documentary in that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we've just been speaking about, she, um, her husband was incredibly supportive and just thought that yeah. she was a wonder woman and he w- would do anything to support and elevate her. Whereas this was the absolute opposite. Yeah. Bobby Brown was so threatened by her career and she was far more talented and far more successful. Mm. And she kept lowering herself to keep, that sort of relationship active and alive and it turned it became very abusive and probably the saddest part of this story I, th- I found was the daughter mm. that just sort of gets forgotten yeah. and lost in it all yeah Bob, yeah anyway sorry well there is also that major bombshell and i don't yeah. know whether i allude to it i don't it's know particulars either. though i thought it had gone public before i'm sure I was, well, I was this fairly, was the first i'd heard of it but that yeah. doesn't mean it that is mentioned yeah. i'm pretty sure it's mentioned in the other documentary but there's a particular name that isn't yeah identified well, I thought perhaps we can talk about it without naming anybody mm. but it is definitely it is definitely in the media because i've been reading about it today yeah. and the thing i actually found most disturbing about this documentary and i i, I don't know whether this was through accident or design but the filmmaker seems to be, and the impression I got was was on board with a certain spin that family members were putting on certain incidents in Whitney's childhood that Mm. uh, pertain to this bombshell, perhaps influencing her sexuality, which is an absolute furphy. Yes. Yeah, that Um, was disgusting. But Mm -hmm. that that came up and it was just sort of insidiously in the fabric of this film. And that rubs me. It's overtly said at one point. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, through not saying what exactly it is I'm alluding to here, people might be generally getting the drift anyway, mm. but it's mm. um, it's something that's just quite rotten. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah. But, I, I mean, I sense there are family members who, who yeah. Well, they're it, basically saying homosexuality is born out of trauma or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's how, I mean, we... This, this Robin character whom I've known about for some time that, that yes, Whitney had a queer relationship in her life, at least that one very significant one mm. and maybe others, who knows, but that there's such uh, resistance to her being given any real voice in this film. Um, mm. Certainly no one seems to have made any effort to reach her to put her on screen. She's, she's uh, very private. So yeah. She doesn't give interviews and she doesn't talk about it, which is one strength of the other documentary because um, that has, I think, two major tours. The One of the directors of the first film uh, accompanied Whitney and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage of just kind of like verite style, just kind of following Whitney and sort of the things they're getting up to and... And Robin plays a big part in that. And you can actually see the affection, the genuine affection and love between Robin and and Whitney in that film. Um, So through the archival footage in the first film, Robin has a big voice. But in this one, she clearly doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so that's troubling. And there's a Mm. lot in this story that is troubling and and going in to see it, I knew it would get there. I actually found the film grossly overlong. It took a long time to get anywhere. But I still, um, I enjoyed certain formal strategies it adopted. I enjoyed all of the footage, especially of the 80s, just uh, the montages of 80s popular culture and news, uh, just uh, 
to put in relief uh, the ascent, the, the dizzying ascent of this young woman mm. to the top of the hit parade. Yeah, I enjoyed that too, especially in the opening. There's this a cappella version of I Want to Dance with Somebody, which I'll play later, um, which they, yeah, like you say, Suri, they intercut it with this really sharp footage of riots or of war. And you and so you get this really wonderful sense of the 80s as this hedonistic time, but also this time of, of a lot of struggle and grief and poverty and pain and it was that was I thought that was really effective it doesn't carry the film though but it was it doesn't yeah it doesn't and uh, but if you know I would like I would have liked this film to have been about half an hour shorter but that's not what I'd have removed yes. it just seems to I mean I, I don't and Bobby Brown is not a human being who interests me terribly. He could have been excised from this story. Yeah. More Robin, less Bobby. Yeah, that's but me, true. I don't even know why he's interviewed because he doesn't give yeah, anything. He doesn't give anything, though. He, he says basically one thing and that's it. Yeah. And it's, it they, it's like, oh, we've got this interview with him. We have to use it now. Yeah. Whatever mm. shit's coming out of He refuses to talk about yeah. the drug addiction, which they ask him about. Mm. And he's like, no, no, I'm not talking about this. They're like, but that's a big part of what happened yeah. here. And he's like, no. <laughs> I mean, especially down. after this because the other film doesn't have any interview footage with Bobby. Right. Or um, any of her family, does it? Or any know. of her family, no, because they were very much sort of against that film and they mm. tried to sort of stop uh, the film being screened. Um, so now Bobby has an, an opportunity to be interviewed on the topic and he just kind of sits there going, no, nah, I'm not talking about it. Mm. I did see somewhere that the filmmaker was saying that he felt that Bobby Brown wasn't emotionally mature enough to talk about. <laughs> well, it just um, felt like he fast. wanted to put himself into the film again for some sort of no. publicity. Can, can we or name to make any him... other Bobby Brown song apart from Humping Around? No, actually, we're having this discussion in the that. kitchen today. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I was thinking that when I got home, I was like, Is, I can't think of another Bobby Brown song apart from Humping Around. No. That's it. Mm. The thing that, um, that sort of sometimes troubles me about these sorts of films is that I, and I guess this is the, the struggle with it was because they focus on her demise. Obviously, they they sort of ignore that meteoric rise that she had to fame. Um, but then you sort of lose uh, the genius of her ability as well. Mm. I didn't really get a good sense of... I got a sense of how wowed and overawed everyone was by her, but um, you didn't get a good sense of what she really contributed to the cultural fabric of music. I know? like the, uh, the there's the scene where she um, has that spin on the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, yeah. That was incredible great. Footage, but even yeah. the way that is framed, it kind of frames her as still being unprofessional and unprepared and just kind of walking out and giving it a go. Mm. Didn't, uh, I think that the way that she sung the Star Spangled Banner, what year was it, 92 or something? I don't something, know. early 90s. Yes. Mm. But apparently that changed the way that that was sung from then on. So that's just really a huge mm. cultural thing. And, yeah, they didn't look into it No, because it was really politically yeah. loaded because it's it's got sort of um, – it's very hard for, I think, the black community to hear that song because it's it's very loaded um, and she sort of took ownership of it and took tried to take some power back within mm. it and so it was, she was really celebrated for it. She was also very criticised by the black community for singing in a, you know, inverted commas, white way, so not, you know, not not black enough and, and then the white people, she was too black, you know, so mm. she sort of had this really, she, she straddled a very challenging position. Uh, I feel that that was explored um, in more depth as well in the Nick Broomfield documentary mm. with the... Um, How her, she came back from that. Yeah, and mm. when she was booed at Soul Train Awards and, yeah, that was more of a focus, which I think is very interesting and it would be 
incredibly painful <laughs> to be rejected by a community like that. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that all the family stuff, I think one of her brothers whispers to the camera at some point, this family has many secrets. And it's clear that they do as they sort of horrifically mm. revealed throughout this um, documentary. And you sort of... You forget where that family... Well, I'd forgotten where that family sits in the music, uh, you know, in music history because her mother, was it Sissy? Mm-hmm. Sissy Houston was a backup singer for Elvis, for Aretha, and she was largely absent from her daughter's upbringing, um, which sort of paved the way for this, um, you know, horror that happens and, we're, you know, that, that she never knew about apparently that we find out later on. But her aunt was also... Um, Dionne Warwick. Warwick, mm. Warwick. Is it Warwick or Warwick? Warwick. Warwick, yeah. Warwick. Um, mm. Another famous singer and um, so there's this whole family it's really embedded in the family what I really also enjoyed was seeing um, the footage in church of her singing in church which is yeah. obviously you know th- her training ground um, aside from her mother but um, I thought that that was that was breathtaking actually to see yeah, what a um, organic sort of talent she was that was then put through this machine of pop culture and spat out the other end. I loved all of the candid hot takes on Janet Jackson and Paul oh, Abdul. Oh, me too. That was great. So good. <laughs> Poor yeah, Janet. serious burns there. I know. <laughs> I know. I, uh, what did she say? She can't even sing in on the album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That was great. Well, her mother, because there was a point where they were talking in the documentary with the, she was, Whitney was quite um, envious of all the the pop stars at the time um but because she at that time wasn't famous um but her parents were really grooming her to create legacy music as opposed to pop music which is really what they did it Mm. was quite remarkable um yeah does anyone else have anything to contribute to that before i i wrap it up and move on no. Oh, yeah. Um so we've been discussing the documentary Whitney which is currently on wide national release. Three triple It's the final film for review tonight um, from our neighbours in New Zealand. Um, the Breaker Upper is uh, stars... Who does it star? It stars Madeline Sammy um, and Jackie Vanderbeek, who also wrote directed and obviously star in the film. Um, 15 years ago, Mel and Jen discovered they were being two-timed by the same man. Bitter and cynical, they become fast friends, forming the ethically dubious The Breaker Upperers, a small-time business who break up couples for cash. Now in their late 30s, business is booming. Um, The platonic, codependent couple keep their cynicism alive by not getting emotionally involved with anybody else. But when they run into an old victim, Mel develops a conscience and their friendship is put to the test. Uh, It also features Australian comedian Cecilia Pacola and New Zealander James Rolleston, who many will remember from the Taika Waititi film Boy. Uh, Waititi is executive producer on The Breaker Upperers too, and it has that sort of distinct New Zealand comedy style. Cerise, as our resident Kiwi, can you please kick off the discussion? Yeah. You're out. You're outed. <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't know that my Kiwiness was exactly a secret, but... Um, <laughs> well, now I've been put on the spot. Uh, what, what can I bring to this that an Australian would overlook? Uh, I, I don't know. Oh, well, let's see. Firstly, just to canvas the room, did people find this funny? I did to a point. To a point. Yes. Mm. I chuckled. Yeah. 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 I did find yeah. it funny. Oh, yeah. so it's yeah. like a confessional. Yeah. Yep. My name's Lisa. I found this funny. Yeah. <laughs> I have a problem. <laughs> you don't have a problem. It's quite natural to find this film at least quite amusing. Yes. Yeah. It, I, I know I found this actually uproarious, but it is like it, it has a certain rhythm whereby the the gags 
um, come pretty swiftly, uh, at least mostly in the form of kooky little scenarios, especially the breaker-uppers presenting themselves in various disguises that suddenly manifesting on people's doorstep to serenade them with a, a sad little breakup song or to, to bust in as cops or any number of other scenarios that come that, that, that appear sometimes in montage form or sometimes just to allow the story to to develop such as it is. It's a pretty thin story really, but uh, it's um, not without its charm. Uh, both Madeline Sami and Jackie Van Beek, who I'm not really familiar with, even though I am from, as you say, New Zealand. <laughs> you should know uh, all the actors yeah, and yeah. writers and filmmakers. Yeah. But they, they, they hold the film. Well, she, um, Jackie Van Beek reminded me of Kristen Wiig quite a lot. There's something about her physicality yeah. and, and mm. her, her delivery and just her, her presence uh, and awkwardness. Uh, and uptightness remind me of certain of Kristen Wiig's characters. They're, they're, they're both terrific on screen. James Rolleston steals the film given half a chance every time he appears on screen as the love interest of one of them. Uh, I mean, he's 17, uh, I think, <laughs> actor and character. Yeah. It's all a bit wrong. Yes. Um, but it's <laughs> amusingly wrong. It's, it's definitely playing up its wrongness. It's a film that's pretty darned aware of what's right and wrong and then still goes for some of those wrong gags knowing that it expects you to go along for that ride and go, oh, that was a bit wrong. That's quite funny, actually. <laughs> that was, I think, what I really enjoyed most about this movie, about how it, it did sort of play with that wrongness with him being 17. And it, I totally agree, he did steal the film. And he'd been in this really awful car accident, James yeah. Austin, who and he hasn't act, been in a film for a really long time. So this is his big return to acting. Right, I didn't know that. Where he uh, got, I think it was pretty intense where he got some brain damage and um, lower back damage, like really horrific Yeah, it was pretty serious. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, he's wow. so, such a young man. Yeah, so this is his big return to the screen and he's excellent in it. Um, I did find this funny. I thought I thought it was... I, I Exactly, I didn't find it riotous. Like when I saw What We Do in the Shadows, I came out of the cinema and my face was sore because I'd just been laughing nonstop. Um, this was just pleasantly funny. I did enjoy watching it. It was good. I liked it too. I felt, um, I just sort of felt like it probably would have been better as a short film. I don't think it could sustain the the full length feature. I, I, I was laughing probably up until about 45 minutes in quite regularly and joyously. I was really, um, yeah, enjoying the gag, but I think the gag could only be stretched out sort of so far. Um, it's funny you mentioned Kristen Wiig because I do, I do feel like the comedy had a lot in common with something like Bridesmaids. I feel that um, I mean, at the centre of this film, which I did like, is, is a relationship between two women, even though it's about breaking up predominantly heterosexual couples, although there are some same-sex couples in there too. Um, but it's predominantly about female love and friendship and, and I enjoyed that and I did feel real. There's a lot of scenes that just felt like... Uh, the, 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 the scenes that worked best for me were just the, the scenes where they're talking about nothing in particular, um, maybe the way Celine Dion sings or and, and they're the sorts of conversations that you have with your girlfriends and I found them, yeah, really sort of honest and truthful and I like seeing that on screens. Yeah, I think they are actually quite close friends in real life and that definitely, I think, shone through. I enjoy this a lot more than something like Bridesmaids. I definitely see the... Kristen Wiig? Yes. Kristen. 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 One of them? Let's just call her Kay Wiggy. Wiggy. I definitely see the likeness with her and Kay Wiggy, but yeah, Yeah. I I did like this a lot more than Bridesmaids. Yeah, for me, uh, 
Yeah, I did think I did think of the bride, uh, bridesmaids when the bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> The bridesmaid star in K-Wiki. Where the humour comes from heartache. Yes. Yeah, for me, that's where the likeness is. I also thought of uh, one of my all-time favourite films, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, yeah. where I really love that film, but for me, that's not a sort of a laugh-out-loud uproar of a comedy. It's just sort of a very pleasant kind of romp throughout. And I kind of was a very similar film uh, here. I don't think the humour is for everyone. I think some will walk away from this film not liking it. Mm. Um, but I definitely enjoyed it. Celia Pacola is... She's terrific. She's it? such a good actress. Yeah. She's such a great comic actress. Constantly being on the the, uh, the verge of really losing it and then somehow mm. regathering herself. Uh, that face, wonderfully elastic yeah. performance. Um, the bit yeah. where she's so like, uh, when she's saying that she'll weep quietly, <laughs> you won't yeah. even notice me crying. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, she um, was good. Yeah, and I love kind of the, the unexpected queerness of yes. this film. But I, it's so matter of fact, it's almost not that queer, mm, if you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, Which is just, kind of laudable. Yeah, mm. I, yeah, cuz I totally didn't expect it, but when they were having that conversation on the car at night about uh, one of the characters being bi and uh, it was great. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't made a big deal of either. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. It was all That's true. And they, they try out mm. their homosexuality on each other, <laughs> which is quite funny. And the, the mother just assumes that they're gay and yeah. that, that ain't nothing. <gasps> that mother figure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my God. Was there, was, awesome. <laughs> there was a real kind of prude yes. quality to her. It was so great. Yeah, that's a certain sort of Auckland stereotype <laughs> that is quite satisfying as a Wellingtonian, I'll have you know. <laughs> There's um, something also... From a living in Australia perspective, something very utopian about how integrated the New Zealand society is as depicted in this film. Mm. Uh, that uh, Maori and Pakeha people, which is to say people of um, a Caucasian background like myself, in this film that there's there's no sort of tensions per se. There's definitely an awareness of some difference. And, and uh, th this particular um, young woman who's been spurned by the James Rolleston character and her little gang, uh, uh, this amazing sort of group of uh, Pacific Islander uh, characters, including one very conspicuously queer yes. character <laughs> who's just amazing and all of them. Uh, there's just something very there's some awkwardness about about the Christian Wiggy type character engaging with them to try to get them on side to do a big dance song and dance number together, but it's still integrated. The society yeah. is integrated, mm. and from an Australian perspective, with respect to um, Australasians of a Caucasian background and Indigenous folk here, this is this film is utopian in the extreme mm. because we're, we're never going to see scenes like that in Australian comedy with any or Australian drama with any real sense of conviction. Uh, because that's just not where Australia is at. Mm. And I think that's something that reflects well on New Zealand, but also just uh, reflects quite well on this film. Um, mm. But there's a certain social conditions, preconditions that allow that a film to present that, I think. And I think that's something rather wonderful. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, the, and I thought... Um, not funny, but a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I liked I liked that sort of there was an understated kiwiness to the film. Yeah, yeah and I really enjoyed that that too. It's really and the humor's all very self-deprecating and I I enjoy I enjoyed that like I think there was a scene where someone goes um uh well, I guess I'll see you later but I don't ever want to see you again. And like, well, you will. It's New Zealand. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Never a truer word. <laughs> Spoken deadpan. 
Um, well, we have been discussing The Breaker Upperers, which is on limited national release at your local good independent film place that you see your films at. Um, what else did we discuss? RGB, and um, which is also on limited national release, and Whitney, which is on wide national release. Uh, you've been listening to Sally Christie, Stuart Richards, Cerise Howard, and myself, Lisa Kovacevic. podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Um, on next week's show... This Thursday kicks off the Melbourne International Film Festival, Miff. or MIF, as it is more affectionately known. Um, we'll be strutting the blue carpet, and next week we'll be discussing our favourite and perhaps not so favourite picks of the festival. So tune in for that. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.